G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. On the show today, it's been the backbone of the liberal world order established after World War II, but it now seems that transatlantic relations are at their lowest ebb. Brussels and Washington have been drifting apart since before President Trump took office, but it seems the breakdown in the relationship has been greatly precipitated by the Donald's actions pulling the US out of the Paris Climate Accord, the Iran nuclear deal, and now the US tariffs on the EU. Well, what does all that mean? It's served to severely undermine relations across the Atlantic. Is the relationship dead? Or is this merely a blip in a long relationship that has experienced many ups and downs? Plus, later on, we'll look at the nuclear tests conducted by India and Pakistan 20 years ago this month and ask, with the benefit of hindsight, did economic sanctions work? 25 years ago, in a 1993 edition of Foreign Affairs magazine, the leading Australian intellectual, Owen Harries, made a startling prediction. The political West, as we'd known it during the Cold War, would collapse. His argument was that although the West was a united culture, political unity was another thing altogether. Here's Owen Harries with an updated version of that argument in the ABC Boyer Lectures in 2003. The countries on both sides of the North Atlantic share vast communalities, a common history, culture, political values and institutions. This common heritage, the glory that was Greece, the grandeur that was Rome, Christianity, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the American, French and Industrial Revolutions, representative democracy, the rule of law, the market economy. All this surely gives Western political unity a firm basis. Well, no, it does not. A common civilization is one thing. Political and geopolitical unity is another. For most of their existence, relations among Western countries have been marked by division, rivalry and particularly bloody wars, culminating in the two world wars of the first half of this century, which have been aptly described as Western civil wars. The Western alliance of the last half century was the exception, not the rule, the product of a shared sense of great danger, a mutual fear, not of civilizational affinities. Now, according to Owen Harries, it took the presence of a life-threatening, overtly hostile East to bring the West into existence as a strategic entity. So, his argument was, it was extremely doubtful whether the West could survive the disappearance of that enemy. Well, it's been a quarter of a century since the publication of that thesis, but question remains, has Harry's prediction come true in the Trump era? You think about Washington's decision to pull out of the Iranian nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accords, and this week's decision to impose tariffs on the European Union. Does the political West still exist? Celia Berlin is a visiting French fellow at the Brookings Institution Centre on the US and Europe. And Ying Ma, no stranger to this program, is a writer based in Washington. She was a deputy policy director for presidential candidate. He's now Trump Administration Cabinet Secretary Ben Carson. Celia, Ying, welcome to RN. Thank you. Hi. Celia, is this the lowest we've ever seen transatlantic relations go? From a French perspective, you have to remember 2003 as a particularly low point in transatlantic relations, 
when you had a clash between France and Germany on one side and the United States on the other side, with many countries being on both sides of this dispute over the Iraq war. And that felt like a very low point when actually you had the presence of a very real enemy at the time, which was global terrorism. And in spite of the presence of this enemy, to take back the topic of the commentator you pointed out earlier, despite the presence of this very strong enemy that was uh, global jihadism, uh, you had a very strong dispute on the best means to address this challenge, whether it was to go to the roots of the spread of uh, WMDs in Iraq by invading a country such as Iraq and toppling its dictators. So I don't think it's the low point, but it's an ongoing struggle between the two sides of the Atlantic on how to address actually nuclear proliferation at an age of terrorism. Well, following on from that, Ying, um, how does today's rift between Europe and America compare with the 2003 standoff that Celia mentioned? I mean, this was when Donald Rumsfeld (laughs) famously distinguished new Europe from old Europe of France, Germany and Belgium. Right. And I think it bears remembering that everything was pretty nasty back then. The invasion of Iraq, as you mentioned, put, um, as Celia mentioned, put um, the United States and a number of countries in Europe at odds. I get the sense that currently the hostility, even though there is a fair amount of disagreement over policy, some of the hostility is directed at the phenomenon that's Trump himself, that because he is that unconventional. But I also think that we should remember that the United States pulling out of the court doesn't like and that Europe does like, um, is not exactly a new thing either. So you mentioned the, the Iran deal as well as the Paris Climate Accord. During the George W. Bush administration, he pulled out of the Kyoto climate deal, and he also was not at all interested in signing on to the International Criminal Court. And both of those two things that were agreements that or multilateral um, arrangements that a number of so-called New Europe nations very much very much wanted. And I don't think that the United States asserting its interest on the international stage very aggressively is anything new. And I don't think it's anything new that at times it does irk our allies in Europe. George Bush was a strong supporter of NATO. In fact, he wanted to expand NATO to Ukraine and Georgia. Celia, Trump is completely different, though. I mean, during the campaign, and I suspect instinctively, he's very skeptical of NATO. And in 2016, he said that NATO is primarily subsidised by the US budget. A question here is, why should NATO exist nearly 30 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall? I mean, the Soviet Union hasn't existed since 91, and you could argue there was never any clear and present danger to justify NATO expansion. So is there even a case for a Western security alliance in 2018? You raise an important question. When Trump said that NATO was obsolete, it shook transatlantic relations uh, to the core because people were interpreting it as the United States pulling out their security guarantees from Europe in the face of Russia in particular. But actually what uh, Trump was pointing out was that um, NATO needed to be rethinked as Uh, Of course, after 30 years of non-Cold War uh, status quo, what was the point of having NATO, even if uh, since 
2014 have seen an upsurge of Russian territorial aggression in Europe, which renders NATO solidarity more concrete. But, you know, from a French perspective, this whole idea of the West has been often perceived as a concept dominated by the United States as an, a way of increasing, you know, a U.S. sphere of influence. And the French have pushed back on this idea very forcefully all um, along the years and embracing the idea of a French independence, French uh, strategic autonomy that has extended over the years to a European strategic autonomy, actually. And so in that sense, they share a common purpose with this administration and wanted to increase the share of the burden being taken on by Europeans in their own security and by France and other European allies as a normal you know, path forward towards European independence or strategic autonomy. So at the same time as France are committed to their uh, NATO solidarity and, and security guarantees, because what it is at the core is a defense alliance, and it remains important even at the time of you know, uh, global terrorism, as I said, and at the time of increased Russian territorial aggression. It's okay, now on that point defense. about increased Russian territorial aggression, Ying, is that a mm -hmm. fair point? And also, can I just uh, read out a quote from one of your conservative colleagues in Britain, Peter Hitchens, who's been on RN? He's asked recently in the Daily Mail, quote, we don't keep up a huge alliance to protect us from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottomans, or any other powers that have disappeared. So why should we keep NATO? <laughs> How would you respond to that, Ying? Well, I think that from the um, Trump administration's point of view, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's first overseas trip kind of made it very clear that this particular administration does not think that NATO is obsolete. Uh, certainly during the campaign of 2016, there were a lot of people who worried that one of the things that President Trump would do was to pull the U.S. out of, out of NATO, and, and he hasn't on that, um, and you know, and his Secretary of State uh, spending, going straight from his confirmation and swearing in to um, NATO headquarters, I think it was designed precisely to send the signal that the United States is, is very much still standing with NATO. Um, obviously, since the end of the Cold War, um, NATO has uh, has been used, or NATO has had its presence beyond. Um, where uh, where it was originally imagined, certainly NATO has had a presence in Afghanistan. Um, the you know the United States remains grateful for that partnership. Um, I, I think, as far as the Trump administration is concerned, oftentimes there's a bit of um, ambivalence or or a fair number of mixed signals about where the administration stands uh, as far as um, um, Russia is concerned. The president has a tendency to speak very favorably of, uh, of Putin. Um, his top, top aides, however, particularly Secretary of State Pompeo, as well as um, the new national security advisor, are far less effusive in their praise of, of Putin as well as Russia's intentions. And so I think mm. for that reason, a lot of times it has um, appeared a bit more confusing. With that said, however, I think the president himself has signed off in his national security strategy, naming Russia as yes. a key adversary. Okay, but back to 2016 and at various stages last year, some Europeans were even saying that they should be thankful 
to Trump for the wake-up call on the fact that it's time that they, the Europeans, take care of their own security. Celia, you may recall last year, Angela Merkel, she warned, quote, the times in which we could rely fully on others, they are somewhat over, which means that we Europeans must really take our fate into our own hands. Well, the question here is, Celia, where's the evidence Germany is taking the mantle to protect Europe? Indeed, um, the, a French person could have said that. And the reason maybe they didn't is because it's, it's so self-obvious that the call for an increased share of responsibility for Europe, it's so much into French interest that it goes without saying. And uh, even Merkel realizes that, uh, you know, the unpredictability of the Trump administration and the um, the emphasis on interests over values uh, of this administration and the America first uh, policy, all of that points out to uh, the need for a greater a strategic autonomy of Europe. So the French are very much there on the side of the Americans in agreeing that, you know, the Germans should spend more on their own defense, that uh, Europeans need to ally. Uh, there are still, there are movements, uh, you know, there was a defense cooperation agreement signed in December among 25 EU countries. You have recently the European defense initiative that have been going forwards with nine countries, including France and Germany and the UK and Spain and others. Uh, so you have an increase, um, you know, activity on 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 moving Europeans towards a greater um, uh, autonomy on the defense side. But yes, uh, the French are waiting for the Germans to invest uh, much more. The problem is that um, you have a Merkel that is uh, at the end of her reign, uh, 12 years in power, uh, a bit tired of uh, compromising, and she has she's in a new coalition agreement that limits uh, the power of what you can do both on the economic and on the defense side. Uh, but the French are going to keep pushing for, um, uh, you know, reforms on European defense and European also uh, fiscal and economic policy. If you just tuned in, you're on our ends between the lines. We're hosting a debate about the US-EU rift in the Trump era. I'm with Ying Ma. I think we can call her a Trump supporter in Washington. And Celia Balin. I think we can call you a Trump critic from France, Celia. Uh, but Celia, are the Europeans in a way looking like hypocrites? I mean, we've just had this new Italian government, well, this week the Italian president vetoed it, but it was a ragbag coalition of the anti-establishment populist five-star movement and the far-right league. You've got all these other populist and nativist insurgencies are threatening to dismantle establishments all across the continent. Uh, Trump is merely a phenomenon uh, a global phenomenon of this populism, are the Europeans being hypocrites? Celia? It's because you uh, tend to conflate all Europeans with all Trump critics. I think uh, that's unfair as much as I'm not necessarily a Trump critic. I'm just pointing out to the values that the, this Trump administration is putting forwards that are at odds maybe with the most... Um, uh, you know, high-minded uh, liberal values that have taken, that has held together this transatlantic relations. And he's pushing for a more competitive, zero-sum nationalistic foreign policy. Um, so the so it's no surprise that on the other side, you have the same nationalistic populist tendencies in many other countries as much as you found them in France. And I think what's going on is that it's uh, an, an overall of party politics on both sides of the Atlantic that is moving from a classic, you know, left-right divide 
into a new sort of um, uh, nationalist versus uh, internationalist uh, divide. Uh, and in France, actually, it's the, uh, you know, internationalists that, uh, embodied in Macron that have triumphed over the nationalists. And in other countries uh, at this time, it's the nationalist making a, a, a run for it. And you saw that more, most recently with the um, uh, Italian election. But the, uh, if, you, if you take the German Grand Coalition, uh, uh, for example, it's the, the sort of the, the center, both left and right, that has coalesced in opposition to the most nationalist populist um, uh, opposition. Yeah, Ying, what do you make of all this, the, these uh, rising tide of nativist and populist movements in Europe? Does that mean that Brussels are a bit hypocritical when they mock and attack Donald Trump? Um, I, as a Trump supporter, I often think that people who mock and attack Donald Trump tend to be quite hypocritical. Now, uh, when it comes to the um, so-called populist nativist movements in Europe, um, I mean, I, I, I think it, it I, I know a lot of people these days like to lump them all together um, and to lump them all together with the Trump revolution, but I, I would point out that you know, when I was a, an avid Trump supporter um, during his campaign trying to help get him elected, the last thing on my mind was what exactly was happening in Europe um, or, you know, how we were somehow connected to these movements in Europe. And, and I suspect a lot of voters in Europe aren't thinking that way either. Mm. Um, there are certainly links um, and, and there are certainly commonalities. So, for instance, many of these movements do rail against radical Islam and they also rail against the infiltration of radical Islam through all kinds of immigration policies that the electorate believes that the, the elites have sort of imposed on them. I mean, there are various other common themes, for instance, you know, the theme of people taking back their own government, um, people sort of um, rising up against very um, un, um, unresponsive bureaucrats in far-off places, things like that. But, but I always find that it's a little bit um, odd, perhaps, and, and perhaps, you know, not all that productive to characterize to lump all of these movements together because every one of these movements, and we're talking about, you know, movements that have um, put leaders in place due to democratic processes, that um, that it's ultimately about, you know, um, democracies and, and what the specific concerns of those democracies are. And, and it's about a people's sovereignty, that there are people who believe that they're exercising their sovereignty by, by taking back control of of um, national borders, for instance, that have become uncontrollable, things like that. Yeah, okay. Well, let's let's you know, return to Owen Harry's prediction that the political West, as we've known it since the beginning uh, of the Cold War period, that is collapsing. Uh, Celia, is uh, can you see a time in the next decade where this political and strategic unity of the West is a thing of the past? I would say that uh, this unity of the West, if it was based on today's uh, globalized elite values, that it has uh, sort of a, a neoliberal consensus that it has in involved in, it, it could be a thing of the past. Because what we see in those populist movements, be there from the left, from the right, or sometimes from the center, as Macron is, is, is more than anything a, a cry for 
a renewal of political elites. And maybe what we're going to see is uh, just upheaval in the West on all all different sides, uh, because people want a, a change of government. Um, they they all share the same diagnosis that uh, you know thirty uh, years of globalization has uh, provoked uh, inequalities so deep that you need uh, new ideas. But they just offer different remedies. And if the remedies are so different on both sides of the Atlantic or within Europe between different countries, maybe it will create a separation. But at the end of the day, when the challenge comes either from Russia or from China or from, you know, completely different authoritarian models, we will realize that those uh, political differences are, are, are just uh, something we can work with and that it has not separated us uh, that much. Uh, that, that being said, I think there is now a clear... Uh, uh, will from Europe to be strategically autonomous because we're very far from the end of the Cold War. The U.S. is not willing to be as involved in Europe's security as before. And and it's, it's fine. It's just a moment when Europeans realize that they are, it's time for them to, to, to fly on their own. Yes, it's fascinating. I, uh, I read a statistic the other day that said that um, uh, there are about 60,000 US troops on the European continent. But at the end of the Cold War, we're talking nearly 30 years ago now, there were 300,000 troops. So that's quite extraordinary. Ying, final question. Is this the end of the political West or will normal programming likely resume uh, post-Trump? Um, we started out by talking about how nasty every the, everything was um, under the George W. Bush era, but certainly, you know, the Obama administration would claim that they actually patched things up quite quite well during his administration with the Europeans, and so one could envision perhaps um, some of the European governments who are anti-Trump or very critical of Trump doing something similar. But but I would want to point out that in fact one of the biggest supporters of the idea of the West is actually. President Trump himself, when he was in Warsaw last July, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he referred to America and Europe as this great community of nations. And in fact, what Owen Harris was saying was that it requires an imminent danger to bring the Europeans and the Americans together. But as far as Trump is concerned, we do have this imminent danger. And to him, it's the danger of radical Islamic terrorism. So I think that he has gone out of his way to talk about what is undermining the West. He has even, during his trip to Warsaw, talk about how the foundation of freedom is the cornerstone of the defense of these, this great community of nations. And, and he talked about... Um, so, Donald Trump, so Donald Trump is a champion of a united political West after all. Fascinating. To be continued. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. Ying Ma is an author and policy expert in Washington, and Celia Balin is a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution Centre on the United States and Europe. Looking back. In retrospect. With the benefit of hindsight. If only we had known. Well, this week marks the 20th anniversary of Pakistan's nuclear tests. Pakistan today successfully conducted five nuclear tests. The results were as expected. There was no release of... Pakistan's nuclear tests followed India's nuclear tests about a fortnight earlier. Today, at 15.45 hours, India conducted three underground nuclear tests. 
and the reaction was hostile. The international community imposed harsh economic sanctions on both India and Pakistan. Ambassadors and high commissioners were recalled and many intelligence agencies predicted a nuclear exchange on the subcontinent. Here's President Bill Clinton. India and Pakistan are great nations with boundless potential. But developing weapons of mass destruction is self-defeating, wasteful and dangerous. Here's UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. As in Pakistan, I will be encouraging the government to sign the CTBT. High on the agenda will also be... And here's our own Foreign Minister, Alexander Downer. Neither country would ever be in a position to be able to use those weapons without creating the most catastrophic of circumstances. And uh, I really think it's uh, worthy of the strongest of condemnation that uh, India, followed by Pakistan, have behaved in this way. But in hindsight, what good did economic sanctions do? Sanctions never worked against Castro's Cuba at the height of the Cold War, and sanctions here hardly convinced the predominantly Hindu nation and its Muslim neighbour to jettison their own nuclear programs. Moreover, were the Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests really so surprising and dangerous? And was the world better off knowing these states had nuclear weapons in public than in secret? After all, the nuclear balance between India and Pakistan has contributed to the avoidance of large-scale military conflict in the region. Nothing surprising about that. Post-World War II history is littered with examples of deterrence preventing powers from using nuclear weapons in an offensive manner. During the long peace of the Cold War, there was actually a very limited chance of nuclear war. Why? Because Washington and Moscow were rational calculators of nuclear risks. And if anything, nuclear weapons assured a NATO deterrence against a Soviet land assault on Western Europe. Nuclear deterrence on the subcontinent has been no different, has it? You think about it. Since partition in 1947, India and Pakistan have fought three vicious conventional land wars. Yet despite their border disputes, Delhi and Islamabad have not fought a major conflict since they generated nuclear capacity in the 1970s. Still, President Bill Clinton, following the Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests, lamented that nuclear deterrence was the worst mistake of the 20th century. He's wrong. Here's Professor Barry Posen. He's the distinguished foreign policy realist making the realist case for nuclear deterrence. My problem with nuclear weapons is rather different. I believe that America knows how to deter countries that have nuclear weapons. Countries that have nuclear weapons are not going to attack the United States because if they do, we're going to annihilate them. It will be very sad for us. It will be even sadder for them. Right? They're mostly small nuclear powers. We are a great and large nuclear power. Right? The whole thing would be very, very, very sad and tragic. And it's easy for the other side to know how tragic it's going to be because our nuclear forces are not a secret. Right? We have 1,500 warheads on a variety of delivery systems and we can wreck pretty much any country in the world. Right? That's the residual of our Cold War force. And we are getting ready to spend a trillion dollars modernizing that force to keep it tip-top shape. I think deterrence we can do. That's Professor Barry Posen from Yale University. Now, it's true Pakistan could one day implode into chaos and one or more of its nukes could fall into the hands of jihadists who are irrational enough to use them. Still, the lesson from two decades ago is clear. 
nuclear deterrence works. The Indian and Pakistani tests exploded a lot of naive thinking. Unilateral restraint by the US and pressure from the international community, well, it didn't work, did it? Far from demonising more than a billion people, it made more sense for the five permanent members of the UN Security Council to accept India and Pakistan as members of their exclusive club and make sure they had the right curbs. That's it for Between the Lines this week. If you'd like to send a comment, just go to our homepage, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Always great to have your company. Hope you can tune in again next week.